1990s with their prestige and their estates practically intact. Not that any of this was a problem for the Easterns. Far from resenting the family's privileges, they positively worshipped them. No, the difficulty was that despite living two miles from Broughton Hall itself, they had never set foot in it, nor succeeded in meeting one single member of the family. Of course, David Easton was not the first upper-middle-class Englishman to discover that it is easier to demonstrate a spurious aristocratic background in London than in the country. The problem was that after years of lunches at Brooks's, Saturdays at race meetings and evenings at Annabelle's mouthing his prejudices against the modern mobile society, he had entirely lost touch with the fact that he was a product of it. Protected as he had been by Isabel's kindness and most London hostesses' indifference to anything beyond their guests' ability to talk and eat the food, it was bitter indeed to sit at smart dinner tables and be asked about Charles Broughton's trip to Italy, or how Caroline's new husband was shaping up, and to have to murmur that he didn't really know them. But how extraordinary would come the answer. I thought you were neighbours. And even in this admission there was a certain dishonesty, for it was not that David did not really know them. He did not know them at all. In fairness to David, I would say that these frustrated social ambitions were probably as secret from his conscious mind as they were supposed to be from the rest of us. Or so it seemed to me as I watched him zip up his barber and whistle for the dogs. Fittingly, perhaps, it was Edith who suggested the visit. Isabel asked us at breakfast on Saturday if there was anything we'd like to do, and Edith wondered whether there was a local stately, and what about that? She looked across at me. I wouldn't mind, I said. I saw Isabel glance at David. I knew and understood the Broughton situation, and Isabel knew I knew, though being English we had naturally never discussed it. As it happens, I had met Charles Broughton, the lumpish son and heir, a couple of times in London, at those hybrid evenings where show business and society congregate but seldom mingle. These encounters I had kept from Isabel for fear of salting the wound. David, she said, you go, I've got to drive into Lewis. Honestly, you go. There was reproach in his eyes, which Isabel dealt with by pulling a slight face as if her hand was being forced. As the months and then years of disappointment had unfolded, not visiting the house had become a kind of principle, as if David did not want to give the Broughtons the satisfaction of seeing him pay good money to see what should by rights have been his for nothing. But Isabel was curious to see the place that had become a symbol of their lack of social muscle. The three of us packed into her battered Renault and set off. I asked Edith if she knew Sussex at all. Not really. I had a friend in Chichester for a while. The fashionable end. Is it? I didn't know counties had fashionable ends. She smiled at me with what I have since come to recognise as a habitual expression of slight sadness— and I saw that her eyes were not blue, as I had at first thought, but a sort of misty grey. We turned through a pair of monumental stone piers and started down the wide gravel drive. The vast mass of Broughton Hall sprawled before us. It seemed to have been designed by an eighteenth-century forerunner of Albert Speer, and did not so much complete the view as block it. The car crunched comfortably to a halt. One of Edith's favourite stories would always be that she first saw Broughton as a paying guest, barred by a red rope from the intimate life of the house. Not, as she would remark with her funny half-laugh, that the place has ever had much intimate life. 
The cold, dank room by which we entered, later we would know it as the Under Hall, was as welcoming as a deserted stadium. Apart from four dirty views of Venice a long way after Canaletto, there were no pictures. Like all the rooms at Broughton, the hall was perfectly enormous, making the three of us feel like the borrowers. Well, they don't believe in the soft cell, said Edith. From the underhall, clutching our guidebooks, we climbed the great staircase and progressed to the saloon, another huge room with walls hung with crimson flock wallpaper. Chicken tikka for me, said Edith. I laughed. She was quite right. It looked exactly like a gigantic Indian restaurant. Isabel opened the guidebook and began to read in a geography mistress voice. The saloon is hung with its original paper, one of the chief glories of Broughton's interior. The cabinet in the centre of the south wall is by Boole. Between the windows... I drifted away to these same tall windows and looked down into the park. It was one of those hot, sulky days in late August when the green upon green of the countryside is stuffy and airless. As I stood there, a man came round the corner of the house wearing tweeds and corduroys despite the weather. It was Charles Broughton. He looked up and I raised my hand in greeting, which he acknowledged with some slight gesture of his own and went on about his business. Who was that? Edith was standing behind me. Charles Broughton, a son of the house. The only son of the house, I think. Will he ask us in for tea? I shouldn't think so. I've met him precisely twice. Charles did not ask us in for tea, and I'm sure he wouldn't have given me another thought if we hadn't run into him on our way back to the car. Hello, he nodded quite amiably. What are you doing here? Isabel, taken short by this unexpected propulsion into the land where dreams come true, fumbled for something to say that would fasten like a fascinating burr inside Charles's brain and result in a close friendship springing up more or less immediately. No inspiration came. He's staying with us. We're two miles away, she said boldly. Really? Do you get down often? We're here all the time. Ah, said Charles. He turned to Edith. Are you local too? She smiled. Don't worry, I'm quite safe. I live in London. He laughed, and his hearty features looked momentarily quite attractive, with that fair Rupert Brooke hair, crinkly curls at the nape of the neck that is so characteristic of the English aristocrat. I hope you like the house. Edith smiled and said nothing, leaving Isabel to reel off her silly gleanings from the guidebook. I stepped in with the pardon. We ought to be off. David'll be wondering what's happened to us. We all smiled and touched hands, and a few minutes later we were back on the road. You never said you knew Charles Broughton, said Isabel. I don't. Well, you never said you'd met him. Edith made a that's torn it expression with her mouth, and Isabel was noticeably cool to me for the rest of the weekend. Edith Lavery was the daughter of a successful chartered accountant himself the grandson of a Jewish immigrant who had arrived in England in 1905 to escape the pogroms of Tsar Nicholas II. I do not think I ever knew the family's original name, Levy or Levin. At any rate, the Edwardian portraitist Sir John Lavery was the inspiration for the change, which almost certainly was a good idea at the time. When asked if they were connected to the painter, the Laveries would answer, vaguely, I think, thus linking themselves with the British establishment without making any disputable claims. It is quite customary for the English, when asked if they have met so-and-so, to say, well, I've met them, but I don't know them, when they have not met them. This is because of a subconscious urge on their part to create the comforting illusion that the England of the upper middle and upper classes is crisscrossed with a million invisible silken threads that weave them together into a brilliant community of rank and grace and exclude everybody else. Mrs. Lavery, Edith's mother, considered herself a bird of quite a different feather to her spouse, fond as she was of him. Her own father had been an Indian Army colonel, 
but the salient detail was that his mother had been the great-niece of a banking baronet. Kindly in many ways, Mrs. Lavery was passionately snobbish to a degree verging on insanity, and so her frail connection to this, the very lowest hereditary rank, filled her with the warming sense of belonging to that inner circle of rank and privilege where her poor husband must ever be a stranger. Mr. Lavery did not resent his wife, not in the least. On the contrary, he was proud of her, and if anything he was rather entertained by the idea that the phrase noblesse oblige, one of Mrs. Lavery's favourites, could have the slightest application to his household. They lived in a large flat in Elm Park Gardens, which was almost at the wrong end of Chelsea. Still, it was not exactly Fulham, nor worse, Battersea. Edith was sent off to a fashionable nursery school, and then Benenden. No, not because of the Princess Royal. We simply looked around and we thought it the most inspiring place. Mr. Lavery would have liked the girl's education to have been continued at university, but Mrs. Lavery's great ambition had always been to bring her daughter out. Stella Lavery had not been a debutante herself. She would seek to conceal it under a lot of laughing references to the fun she'd had as a girl, and if pushed for specifics she might sigh that her father had taken rather a tumble in the thirties, thereby connecting herself with the Wall Street crash and echoes of Scott Fitzgerald and Gatsby. The truth, as Mrs. Lavery was forced to admit to herself in the dark night of the soul, was that in the less socially freewheeling world of the 1950s there had been clearer demarcation lines between precisely who was in society and who was not. Stella Lavery's family was not. She envied those of her friends who had met as debutantes with a deep and secret envy that gnawed at her entrails. She even hated them for including her in their reminiscences about Henrietta Tiarx or Miranda Smiley, as if they believed that she, Stella Lavery, had come out when they knew, and she knew they knew, she had not. For these reasons, she had been determined from the outset that no such gaps would...